Welcome to episode 20 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Sasser Hill. Author Sasser Hill was involved in horse racing as an amateur jockey and then became a horse race breeder for most of her life. She sets her novels against a background of big money, gambling, and horse racing. Her mystery and suspense thrillers have won the Dr. Tony Ryan Best in Racing Literature Award and the Carrie McRae Award. Her books have also received multiple award nominations for Agatha, McCabe, and Claymore Awards. Her newest release is Travels of Quinn, a standalone mystery thriller based on the con artists known as Irish-American travelers. Sasser lives in Aiken, South Carolina, horse country, with her husband, a dog, and a cat. Now let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I am so excited to have Sasser Hill with me. Hi, Sasser. Hi, Carly. Sasser Hill is very excited to be here, too. This is going to be fun. It is absolutely going to be fun because it's two authors talking about the best thing on earth, horses and writing about them, right? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I, I love them, and I, I love writing about them. Excellent. So this is going to be a, a great conversation. And I think, you know, that leads me to, we love, we both love horses, right? So I'd love to hear how your love affair with horses began. Well, when I was really little, like when I was two and three years old for my birthday, I always wanted pony ride, pony ride. <laughs> and then um, my parents, my father had a farm in Maryland with Belgium draft horses and he would not let me have a pony. I mean, we had this big farm with stables, everything. He wouldn't let me have a pony. So when I, by the time I was six, seven, and eight, I was walking up to these huge Belgium draft horses and then climbing up in the stall, getting on their backs after I tied a, a little string or anything I could find to their halters. And then I'd drum my little heels in their sides and get them out of the barn and off I'd go. And uh, I was riding around on these horses by myself. That's just a little tiny thing. And uh, the people that owned the horses, the um, tenant farmers, thought it was funny and cute, and they never said anything to my father. <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine there was some binders twine maybe involved in, uh, in tying to the horse's halter so you could... Exactly. <laughs> anything I could find. Anything. And it usually would be um, string off of a hay, hay net, I mean a hay bale or a straw bale. I don't, horse people can do anything with a piece of oh, yeah. binder's twine. <laughs> well, if you, it, where there's a will, there will be a way. <laughs> Especially for a horse-crazy cowgirl or, or equestrian, for sure. We, we will do whatever it takes to get on the backs of our horses. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Indeed. So I had so much fun galloping around your very cool website, uh, doing some research to gather questions for our interview today. And something that, like, you know, you've been involved with horses for, you know, as long as you can remember. But one thing that was really interesting to me is that you've been involved in horse racing as an amateur jockey right. and, and you've been, uh, uh, you know, in racehorse breeding for most of your life. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about how you came into that? And I really would love to know what it feels like to ride a racehorse and be involved in the breeding side. So tell us a little bit about that part of your history with horses. Well, it's really, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, I cannot tell you. Um, but when I was 16, my father passed away, and um, a man named Alfred H. Smith um, took me under his wing. He was a wealthy gentleman who lived not far from our farm, and he raised, bred, rode um, steeplechase horses. In fact, he had the Eclipse Award-winning steeplechase champion named Tuscaly two years in a row. Um, so he was a big deal in that, that world, uh, steeplechase world. And he took me under his wing and put me on a horse that had just come off the steeplechase track. He was a chestnut named Hilmar. 
And um, off I went fox hunting because my mother, you know, my father just died. So my mother went up to him at a cocktail party and said, I've got this daughter and da, 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 you know, and she's kind of getting into trouble. And he said, well, bring her on down. I'll put her on a horse. And boy, he did. <laughs> and um, there were a few times that I would pass the master with the, you know, <laughs> the bit in the horse's teeth. But everybody put up with it because, you know, I was 16 and, and I was, they just thought that this was great, that I was getting into this world and it saved my life you know i was getting into some bad areas um i was starting to hang out with the wrong people and maybe not do the best things and this just turned my life around it was wonderful so that's how i got started in the horse business because i got involved with these steeplechase horses and and his farm and he had a stallion there and i would watch his foals and i learned so much from him and he would take me to the races um, with his family, and it was it was just an amazing stroke of luck for a 16-year-old girl, let me tell you. I mean, it was an amazing stroke of luck. And because of that, I always loved that world. And when I got married, um, I had my own hunter, because I'd been fox hunting with the Marlborough Hunt Club and, and Mr. Smith for years, and by the time I got married, I had my own horse, and my husband and I moved into our farm, and um, I decided to get that my horse needed a companion horse. Mm -hmm. So what did I do? I went out and got a broodmare in fall. I went to the Fasig Tipton sales and bought a nice mare, got a great price, and had my first fall on the farm. And then after that, we just never stopped. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's just, I, have you ever had your hands on a newborn foal and felt them? I mean, that the soft fuzz and they quiver mm -hmm. to your touch and they're so sweet and they'll put their little noses on you. Um, it, it's incredible. I mean, there's just nothing like it. And I miss it now that I'm, I'm not in that world anymore, but I'm older and it just kind of made sense to slow down. In fact, I had no choice but to slow down. <laughs> and it, yeah, we do have to start slowing down and, and taking care of us as we get a little older, but yes, I, so, you know, I, I, you've said so much there at it, horses do save lives and they oh, yeah. do heal us and they do teach incredible responsibility for young people that may be you know heading in the wrong direction and i'm so glad like the universe opened up and pulled forth your mom did the right thing you know getting you involved with with horses because they teach responsibility um they teach empathy they teach you have to put them before yourself so so you're you know you're always looking out for the well-being of of something else which i think is a great way to steer young people out of trouble and then it just it yeah, so you, you had that wonderful experience of, of, of the horses healing you when you were dealing with, you know, the death of your father and, and so many things. And then, you know, be obviously turned into a lifelong love and you started breeding. And when you said there's nothing like touching a newborn foal, I have had that privilege. Um, my childhood horse, we brought her and, and she had a baby and I was there when it happened. So I, oh, wow. I, it's such a beautiful incredible moment and then seeing them stand and nurse for the first time and that's the beautiful moment that's the moment when they could stand and nurse and i would see the throat swallowing mm -hmm. and colostrum and all those good vitamins and things that they had to have to stay alive were going down the throat then i'd always start crying because you know you're so tense and you're so afraid and then that's that moment of relief where the plug mm -hmm. is pulled and you go okay <laughs> we've got a good shot here of making it with this one you know and because they don't all live and it can be very, very hard. Uh, so, and I guess we don't really need to talk about that too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but you know, that is part of life. There, you know, sad yeah, things do is. happen. And particularly when you're breeding horses, um, you know, there are complications just like with anything in life. So that's also a lesson that horses teach us, right? So yes, uh, that's a beautiful thing. And then, and then when you were involved in, in breeding, were you breeding for steeplechase or fox hunting or what were you, flat, what were you breeding for? Flat track, flat track. Um, my horses all ran at um, Pimlico, Charlestown, Delaware Park. Um, there was a track for a while in Virginia called, um, oh God, what was the name of that? Well, anyway, even one of my books, this book, um, took place at that racetrack in Virginia. Um, and it, it was just... Actually, I made more money down there because they had this amazing breeders program where if you had a Virginia bred, um, you got these big bonuses. 
um, when your horse ran in a race and won, you got a huge bonus on top of that. So um, it was interesting, all the things. I learned so much about horse racing and all the breeders' programs and the bonuses and why Maryland racing went bankrupt and uh, why I had to get out. Um, it was just, it was so interesting. And I was so angry at the legislators in Annapolis, Maryland for ruining the horse industry, the racehorse industry in Maryland for a time. I actually appeared up in, uh, in an editorial in the Washington Post with all out in the field holding all my horses um, because I was so angry and I, convinced one of the editors who was all for not having um, slot machines in the state of Maryland. I explained to him, I was on the phone with him for 45 minutes and he finally got it, what the deal was that would make people who bred horses be able to, to survive in Maryland doing that if we had the right um, programs and we could get the money. So there's just, horses, if you're, and if you're, I was never into show horses, but the gals that are in, in show horses, you can imagine the things they learn about, that we all learn about greed and, and people stabbing each other in the back and then the thrill of the win. It's, it's all, no matter what area you're in, you learn a lot about people, mm -hmm. learn about how to negotiate. So it, it's just, it, they're just wonderful animals. I just, if I had a daughter, she'd probably be on that horse right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is a cool bond to be able to share with, you know, a, a family member. This is like, for me, the perfect segue into, you know, your author career, because you, you said how much the horses taught you. And obviously you were very involved in the racehorse industry and breeding and um, raising, raising horses and having them, you know, learning the healing part, but then also the difficult controversial part about being involved with, you know, the equestrian community and what goes on to that. So let's, you know, let's talk, like, why did you decide to write your books? Um, and what led you to become, you know, what led you to your author life? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that happened was, you know, as soon as I was old enough to read, I would go right to all the um, Black Stallion books <laughs> in the library and used to drive my mother crazy because she wanted me to read other things. Um, when I was in the fifth grade, uh, I was in class one day, and Mrs. Kimmerling, I remember that was her name, and she always had coffee breath. Um, <laughs> the, but you do remember the these. The worst. Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. Um, anyway, she told the class to write a little story, a little something on a piece of paper, and everybody in the class was like, ah. mm -hmm. uh, So I wrote a little, just a fragment of a thing. It was kind of like a... Um, Black Stallion type story. There was an old man driving a trailer. There was a boy in the trailer next to him and they were pulling a horse and they were going to the races. And I don't remember what happened, but I made something bad happen to the, while they were driving. And um, then that's kind of where the story stopped. And afterwards, um, I just was so surprised because all these little kids in the class, they, they raised their hands and I said, yes. And they said, what happens next? And there is no, well, you're an author, you know, mm -hmm. there is nothing better to hear in your life than people want to know what happens next. So I thought, gosh, maybe I can do this. So I, I wrote a lot of, I, it was always my, you know, my strong point throughout school, writing, creative writing, I took a lot, but I did what so many of us do. I got out of uh, college and I went to secretarial school and I got a pardon me, crappy job that I hated. And I did that <laughs> until, you know, and then I got married and got the horses on the farm. So I had two lives going on. Mm -hmm. um, and then I finally wrote my first book, which is still in a drawer where it belongs. Um, it was a romantic horse thriller called Heart of a Winner. And then I took, I got very depressed and I thought, well, I can't write, you know, because the book was rejected by everybody. And, um, I finally got with the program and went to a school in Bethesda called the Writers, the Writers um, School and took courses in writing a mystery novel. And I wrote my first book and it was nominated for an Agatha and a Macavity. So that was just great. And, and that is an amazing story, an amazing journey. And, and I, you know, it's so interesting, um, particularly, you know, I notice with a lot of us as, as I'm interviewing other horse book authors and, and we're talking, it's like those 
two things have always been constants in our life, the desire to write creatively and, you know, or, or enjoying writing and then horses. And it's like, I look back at my life and those are the two things that have always been consistent for me. And it sounds like you're having that same experience. Yeah. There, it's like the cement that keeps your life together in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to be able to write about what I had experienced as a racehorse owner, I am mm-hmm. I learned so much about the tricks and the good things and the bad things. And um, so I could write a good mystery that everybody would say it's so authentic. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's probably why I've done fairly well, you know, not great, but fairly well. And, and that's so exciting. And, and I'm so happy for your success. And, you know, I'm so happy to be talking to you for the first time because we've known each other, you know, just from the, the writing community and the horse community and the circles uh, online. But this is the first time we're talking in person. So I'm so excited to be able to do that with you, which leads me to my next question, which is, you know, how many books have you written? Tell us about your books. You, you know, you write horse racing murder mysteries. Like, let's, let's hear about your series. Let's talk about your books. I'm, I'm really interested to know, to know even more. Well, the first book I wrote that was nominated for Agatha McCavity, um, best first book, um, was Full Mortality. So I have a four book. Um, that series of stars or features Nikki Luttrell, who's a young female jockey. And I have four of those, and I'm writing my fifth right now, um, working on my fifth one. Then I got um, a new agent, and we brainstormed, and we came up with another, because nobody, the publishers are not going to take a series that you have. That series, the Nikki Latrell series, started out with a um, small publisher, and a small press and as one I don't know if you know of there's a sisters in crime gal named Lois Watson and she she told me the other day and and I just hit me that she was so right because the writing world is so hard now she said most of the gals I know who are writing for small presses are little more than indentured servants Mm -hmm. and it just hit me so hard because it's true you know it's so hard to really make money and they they will tie you up into 10-year contracts you get 10%, they get the rest. So that's why I got the rights back from the small press and self-published those books. Then I got a new agent and ended up getting a, a two-book deal with St. Martin's Press. Mm. At that point, you know, I thought, well, here I am. I have arrived. I am with one of the big five. Well, it didn't work out that well. The books didn't sell that well, and they didn't give me a contract for a third book. So what was going to be the third book I turned back into a Nikki Latrell novel, and that's the one I'm working on now. And then in the meantime, I wrote a non-horse racing book. has horses in it, though. <laughs> it's about a, um, a young girl who's born into the community of Irish-American travelers. They're the, they're the con artists and scam artists that live. Uh, the largest um, clan is right here where I live in South Carolina. And um, so I thought, well, they're, they're basically gypsies, so what could be better than a gypsy banner? Those horses are so cool. I just oh, love them. They are so beautiful. they're in the book. Yeah, they, are, they are beautiful. And she learns all about what it's like because she doesn't know anything about horses to have to scrub out those feathers around their ankles and those, you know, the, she calls them bangs. She goes, what, why do you have their bangs so long? And the guy gets really mad. That is not a bang. That is a forelock. <laughs> um, so it was kind of fun, you know, because she's this gal that comes from that insular closed private community of the um, Irish American travelers. And they're, they're taken out of school really young. Um, they're locked into marriage contracts at very young ages. You'll see little five-year-old girls with wedding rings. I mean, it's just bizarre because they have the contract, see. And then they, they have to marry and they stay inside of the clan. And they, so I thought that is a very interesting background. And for her, like for me, the gypsy banners give her a new world and a place where she thinks maybe I can have a better life. Um, and so it's been fun to write the story. That one's finished and it'll be out in February. That is uh, so exciting. And and for those of you listening to the podcast and uh, watching us on YouTube, I will make sure to link to all of Sasser's books uh, in the show notes so you can can find these wonderful books and 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 get get to her resources. Uh, so 
this is really interesting. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions a little bit later about your preference between traditional and self-publishing. And I'd really like to, or maybe why don't we just do that right now? Because you, you mentioned that, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you what, you know, which do you prefer, but you just mentioned that you have been with a traditional publisher. Yeah, and let me just show, these are the, um, the two books that came out with St. Martin's press, Bingo mm -hmm. road and, um, the dark side of town. And, it was wonderful because they did everything. And now that I'm self-publishing this new book, you know, I'm just, you know, going berserk, trying to keep up with all the new stuff and mm -hmm. do everything right. And uh, so it, I would, if you can be a, the kind of writer that gets with a big press and that you actually make money and they push you and they advertise you, um, that's the best way to go. But it's very hard, very hard. And, and you know, I wanted to talk about that too because you mentioned contracts, right? So, so I'm really big on retaining intellectual property, which you can more easily do being an independent author. And I've Absolutely. heard some stories from people that have been with traditional publishers that, you know, they they only give you a little bit of the the royalties from the book, and then they take the rest, and then they also retain rights to release your books overseas and, you know, do audio versions or even movie rights sometimes. And and you mentioned bringing, getting back your rights from a small press and then, and then going the independent route. Was that difficult for you to do that? Were they, were, and did you have to recover your books? Like what were, what were the, ultra, you know, what were the- Well, I was very, very lucky. I was with the, um, the head of that little press is, is a decent person. And when I wrote um, this book, The Seahorse Trade, mm -hmm. he, forgot to even have me sign a contract so and then with his press you were able to get your book back have the rights back revert back in four years so some of my books were almost to four years this one i had, had just come out and was brand new but i he didn't have a contract so he just said just take them just take them you know because he felt so bad and he knew that i should have been making more money and um anyway so i got the books back and that was easy it was just i just redid the covers because um, I didn't like his covers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's something else to mention about when you do sign with a, a traditional publisher. It's like, first of all, you know, get legal representation, read your contracts, know what you're getting yourself into. But then also when you turn over your manuscript, we, you don't really have a say on how your covers end up looking. And it sounds like that's exactly what you experienced. Is that right? You didn't like it, the covers. It is. And if you look at this picture of Flamingo Road, mm -hmm. Um, there's no horse on the cover. You can't tell what it is and all my I have a following and they are looking for something That has something to do with horse racing and that right. is a horse racing mystery, but who would know? Right. Um, and I'll tell you if I can exactly what happened is that the um, Editor who I just love my editor Hannah Broughton at St. Martin's Press. She was wonderful She fought tooth and nail to get me that two book deal because the people in marketing and sales said, mm, horse racing book, that's not gonna sell very well. Well, you wanna talk about the self-fulfilling prophecy? Mm. I mean, they didn't push the book, she got no support, nothing was done. Mm. So, you know, I don't have the money to, to do what needed to be done, so the book sold, I think about maybe 2,500 copies each, which is terrible. But here's the interesting thing. The Dark Side of Town was got a starred bookless review. It was an editor's pick with a Toronto star. It got great trade reviews. And Flamingo Road also got great trade reviews and won that huge prize. So, but it didn't make any difference because the publisher wasn't pushing the book. That is really interesting because I did want to ask you about this. Your novel, Flamingo Road, won the $10,000 Dr. Tony Ryan Best in Racing Literature Award, uh, is that correct, in 2018, um, yes. which is amazing. And you're saying, you know, you were having a difficult time with the publisher of this book. So, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the award? So did they submit for you or did you do, did you submit They did the book? have to submit. Um, I said, would you, you know, do that? And they did. Um, and then, then you, they narrow it down to like six people and then they narrow it down to three people. And when I found out I was one of three, I thought, oh my God, you know, and then of course, Felix Francis, Dick Francis's son was there with his book Pulse. And I thought, well, <laughs> he's going to win. I mean, he's, he's a Francis mm -hmm. and that's like a franchise. Um, plus they have a big publisher, you know, he's got, um, 
oh God, one of the big ones, I can't think of it right now, behind him. And, and they spend money on him and he's, he's made money for them. Um, and I just thought I didn't have a chance in, you know, hell of mm. winning the prize. And then how did you feel when you did? Like, what doors did that open for you? Because that, that is an ama that's amazing. Well, it was, it was a lot of fun because I wasn't going to go because I couldn't afford to go. But then I found out that the, la that the three people that were the, you know, the last three to contestants, um, they sent you $1,000 so that you could go and, and stay in a hotel. That's horse people and, and, you know, the big world of Kentucky racing. There's lots of money. So they paid my way and I thought, well, this is great. I get to go and I can meet Felix Francis and I can see my friends because I have a lot of friends in Kentucky from the old days, you know. Mm -hmm. So I did and that was great. And they took us, um, TVG, the horse racing television network in uh, the United States of America, there's a really nice gal. Um, her name is... Um, Caitlin, and she interviewed us on live TV, um, Felix Francis, myself, and uh, the other gal, whose last name I think is Henshaw, um, and it was cold. It was springtime, but it was, it was 40 degrees and the wind was blowing, and I was like all bundled up, and I have that video on my uh, my Facebook page, my author page, you can watch that video. It's fun. I watched it and I will link to it in the show notes of so others oh, great, can watch it great. as well. Yeah. And that was the day up. That was, and then, so, um, then they took us to lunch in the jockey club and, you know, where they had prime rib and lobsters. And I mean, I thought, boy, I'm really living it up. You know, <laughs> I haven't had a good steak in like two years. Um, it was really fun. And then, and I sat there talking to Felix Francis and he has his, uh, a spiel that he does because I had met him, oh gosh, three years earlier at, at a um, Mal's domestic meeting. He had come and he told the exact same things. He had the same stuff to say about himself at lunch. And I thought, oh my God, he's going to do this again tonight at the awards ceremony. But, um, and I was nervous and I love bourbon and there's no place in the world to get good bourbon like Kentucky. So I had a couple of drinks with lunch and then we, I went back to my hotel and changed into something much more dressy and slightly more formal for the the party and Caitlin Bredar was there and I um, from TVG and some other would be do people and all these wealthy Irish um, derivative people from uh, that were horsemen I never heard so many Irish accents in my life because uh, Ryan I, I don't know if you've ever heard in Europe of Ryan Air it's mm. an it's a very big airline that everybody in Europe knows and they own that. So uh, there's plenty of money there. And he had just come over from one of his two homes in Ireland for this award um, to his home in Kentucky. And he was an interesting guy, um, Shane Ryan. But anyway, I went to the party and I had a couple of more drinks because I, and then when they, um, they got up on the stage and um, Caitlin did and she told a little bit about each book that was up for the award and then um, Shane got up there and he was going to do the announcement so I'm still chugging down <laughs> and I'm saying to myself you know and it was just like the Academy Awards he has an envelope he doesn't know who the winner is he opens the envelope he pulls out the card he looks at it and I'm like this going pulse Pulse, Pulse. That was the name of Felix Francis's book. And I was preparing myself for the disappointment. Mm -hmm. He will say Pulse. He will. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not going to win. And he said, Flamingo Road. And see, I'm, I'm crying right now just remembering that moment. It was incredible. Flamingo Road, you know, and I burst into tears. And my girlfriend from Kentucky came up and wrapped me in her arms and hugged me. And then I had to clamber back up these steps onto the stage. And I'm thinking, I'm so drunk. How am I going to get up there? I wasn't really drunk, I was, but I was high in a nice way. Yeah. And um, it was funny. All I said was, I was sure I wasn't going to win. And now I realize I have one. I'm going to cry. So I'm going to get down and drink some more bourbon. And I did. And the whole audience went wild. They all cheered. They just thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that story with us. Like what an amazing moment for you as an was, author. It's incredible. It was the best, one of the best things I've ever had happened to me.
Wow. And it sounds like they treated you really well and they took good care of you and they certainly provided the bourbon. (laughs) Yes, they sure did. In fact, at one point, Shane wanted to say something about me. He goes, where is she? Where's bourbon? (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. So I have to ask, what did you do with the the fan, that that $10,000 prize money? Did you Uh, buy a horse or did you invest it back in your business? What did you do? The reason I couldn't go to Kentucky without somebody paying for it is I was dug under credit card, just drowning under credit card debt. So I put $9,600 towards credit card debt. And then for $400, about the most beautiful pocketbook you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> it, was oh. a, it was a black and white cowhide um, handmade bag with a leather harness shoulder straps. And then the inside of the purse was um, lined with red leather. Mm-hmm. It's just the coolest thing. And has little feathers and conchos on it. It's very Western. So that was my big, um, that's what I, you know, the fun thing I spent the money on. The rest all went to credit card debt. Well, you know, and and that's the responsible thing to do, right? Pay down your credit card debt. But I do love that you did something special for yourself and you you honored yourself and your hard work and your creative work uh, with 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 something special for yourself. And that purse sounds like something this cowgirl would like a whole lot. Oh, you would. Oh, it is. They're so cool. And they're handmade right here in Aiken. And the gal that does it has a little warehouse and you can go. I got to pick out my own hides and I got to pick out the the red leather that I wanted and and the shoulder strap I wanted so it was really fun that sounds fabulous and you still have that purse right oh good good I could run out of the room and come back and show it to you but I don't want to do that because the dog would come in Oh, yeah, keep it away from the dogs. Um, so I wanted to ask you too. You, you you mentioned Dick Francis's son, and I wanted you know talk to with you a little bit about that because your writing has been compared with the late Dick Francis. Yes, um, all of his novels deal with crime and in, in the horse racing world, and he wrote more than forty international bestsellers. Like you know, what a compliment to be compared with him. I thought so. How does that make you feel um, when, when that started happening? Um, it was it was great. It was made me feel really nice, especially when an author like Margaret Marin, if you know who she is, she's won, you know, everything. She's won Agatha's, Anthony's, Edgar's, um, and she said, you know, this to say that she is like Dick Francis is not hyperbole. Hyperbole. <laughs> never think of those words out. Hyperbole. I do it all the time. (laughs) I mean, it was just great to have somebody like that say, this is Dick Francis. And then um, the fellow who wrote for years for uh, the Daily Racing Forum and the Blood Horse, Steve Haskin, he wrote, Dick Francis lives. I mean, it was just so nice. It was so nice. Well, and what a testament to your writing, right? I mean, obviously you're doing a wonderful job with your work. I mean, you've won this award. You're being compared to a, you know, a, a best-selling thoroughbred racing writer um, who has since passed. And so you're kind of like bringing, you know, living, a, continuing a, the legacy for people who love to read mysteries in this vein. And so, you know, which leads me to another question, which is like, you write about real life situations in, in the horse industry um, and, you, and you cover topics you know, do you cover topics like um, sensitive topics like drugging and um, in the in the in the business. And, you know, do you ever get any pushback from the industry that you write about these sort of real life topics? And, and how do you handle that or or work around that with your writing so you don't upset upset the community? I've never had any problem at all. Um, first of all, they, they really like it because I'm about the only person that's writing horse racing mysteries that really know about American horse rating and, and get it right and, mm. and just know things. But mostly it's because my love for thoroughbred racing shines through just about every page. And um, I'm always about like in full mortality, a horse was getting ready to be sent to the slaughterhouse and Nikki Luttrell, you know, rents a truck and a, a trailer and goes off into the mountains to, and just barely, barely gets this horse. Um, and she has to use some sneaky stuff to make sure she gets the bid and then she brings it back. Um, things like that. And um, the bad guys who do the bad things, they're pictured as bad guys. And, um, and then they always get what's coming to them. Mm. So, and the good people in my books win. Um, and that's the only way I can write. I don't like real literature where, you know, it all has these dreary endings and, 
you know, I, no thanks. I like genre. I like, I like to write mysteries, and and readers expect um, to have their heroine or hero do well by the end of the book. They mm -hmm. want that, and that's what I write. That's wonderful, and and yes, I do like the the happy endings and you know that satisfaction. I, I'm with you on that one for mm -hmm. sure. As a reader and a writer, that's how I I like to wrap things up as well. And then and so. You know, you obviously write what you know. You're very involved in the in the business. You know your thoroughbreds. You know racing. Um, do you have to do any additional research or 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 anything when you're going to write your books, or or do you just you write what you know? I write what I know, but I always use law enforcement. I always um, have law enforcement contacts in all over the country at this point um, to make sure I'm getting it right when you know we're talking about crime and and courthouse like in the book i just wrote now um that has the gypsy banners in it i had seven law enforcement people that i uh interviewed you know one was the the head of public safety which is just means the head of the um aiken police department and i was taken on a tour of the detention center because in my book my heroine ends up in the detention center she's mm. sent to jail um, and I wanted to know what that was like. So he took me on this long tour and showed me all these different areas and places and, you know, what the prisoners' uniforms were and what they meant, everything. It was just great. And then I had a meeting with a judge early. He's a, um, a district uh, area judge for Aiken County and Bramwell County and some other counties in this area. And I spoke with him, and he wanted to know what the book was about. When I told him, he said, how did you ever come up with all that stuff? And I said, well, I'm a writer. So, um, but he was a big help, you know, and then I have a friend who's just wonderful, who is a, he was a, um, he worked with uh, the DEA. He was an under, undercover cop, he used to be a jockey. That was the first thing he ever did. Oh, wow. And, and then he was a um, district attorney and a prosecutor. Um, and now he's just in private law practice, but, could there be anybody more perfect for me to pick their brain? I was uh, going to say, what a great resource to, to be able to sit and yeah, talk about. Uh, he's great. He's great. And then there were some people in the courthouse that were very uh, helpful. Um, the clerk of the court showed me where they put the prisoners during trial because I wanted to know where my heroine, Quinn O'Neill, you know, what's it like to be waiting there knowing you're going to be going into the courtroom in any second with your life on the line? and where do they put them? And she showed me these little rooms that they put them in that have like these little small squares of thick glass. And I said, do they ever like yell? And she goes, oh yeah, we hear some things. <laughs> Just like, so it's, it's, it's fascinating to do the research. It's, and you meet so many interesting people. That's right, absolutely. And it sounds like you're, you're being responsible about when you're talking about law enforcement and, and crime and how that works and getting the authentic experience so you can write from a place of uh, knowing what that was like, right? You know, yeah. if you haven't been in the situation, at least talk to people that can give you guidance on what the situation might occur like or be like or feel like. That's yeah. really smart. It is nice. And I remember there was a um, Breen, uh, John Breen, I think his name was, he was in, uh, he interviewed or rather reviewed Full Mortality. And um, he was with Mr. Scene Magazine or, I think it was Mr. C Magazine. Anyway, I remember the quote he said was like, it was this and that and that's and reeks authority, which was interesting that, you know, he meant I knew, it was very clear that I knew what I was talking about. That is awesome and, and way to go. And, and your reviews are solid. I've read a, a many of them that are on your, your website and people are really supportive of your writing. Um, you mentioned earlier that when you were with a traditional publisher uh, for F Flamingo Road, they, the cover that they created didn't have a horse on it, which, right. you know, I know I will read anything with a horse on it or I'm attracted to yeah, it. Now, pick it up and look at it, right? Absolutely. And so, which leads me to wanting to talk about, you know, your current book covers and the ones that you've, you've redesigned for yourself. Um, you know, tell us how you come up with the ideas for your book covers. Because when I look at your book, I know this is a book about horse racing. And, and that's why it, that's a very important thing to do with book cover design. So you can talk, can you talk to us a little bit about yeah, the, covers? These, these Nikki Luttrell books, you see the girl on galloping on the horse? Mm -hmm. She could be Nikki Luttrell. When I saw that picture, I thought, oh my God, that's my girl. And that's the horse. 
um, so then I found out that it was an American pharaoh. Oh. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got to get a hold of this picture. That was him as a two-year-old in training before anybody ever even heard of him. And I found the photographer in Florida, and we had a little bit of a um, problem with the language. But he had a woman there that would get on the phone and so that I could understand because he was Spanish um, or Mexican. And anyway, I bought the picture, the rights to the picture, at least not the, so that I could use them. Mm -hmm. I think it was like $150 and I've just used it on the cover of every book because it's such a, it's just, that's just Nikki on that horse there. I'm looking down at her picture. That's <laughs> Nikki. <laughs> and it's, and it's perfect. And so you, you, I mean, so you used, you bought, you did the right thing. You bought the rights to the picture to use, to. to use on your work. Yes. You have to be responsible about that. You can't just pull something off the internet and use it. Uh, people need to be uh, paid, paid for, for their work, but, yeah. but people recognize that picture for your work. So when you do an, another book, you, you may use the same picture, but you change the, the color of the background and yeah. the title. That picture is going on um, the Nikki Latrell I'm writing right now, but I will change the background color. And, and that's fantastic branding because when people see that, they know it's one of your books. And, and, and that's a really interesting way to do things, I think. Yeah. Now, I did not put gypsy banners on the cover of the new book. I put, um, but I, I like the cover. Um, I'll send you a, a picture of it. I don't have one like here on the desk to hold up. Um, but I think it's, it's, I like it. And it's, um, the cover makes it very clear that there's a young woman with blonde hair. She's walking away down a road of, of very dark, heavy live oaks that branch over, you know, and twist. And, um, and just the back of her walking away. And, and then the title is Travels of Quinn. Uh, Quinn O'Neill. So I hope that will will appeal to people. But then at the top, I put the Sasser Hill in the white letters, like every single one of my books that I've done. So see that there. Mm -hmm. And I'm and hoping that that would make it more recognizable. Yeah. And you never know. You just do the best you can, right? That is absolutely correct. And I think that you're doing a great job and and everything's looking so wonderful. And, and, and you know, I wanted to shift you know, a little into like your experience with writing and marketing, since we're kind of, you know, talking about book covers. Um, it, what's, is there anything that you wish you had known when you were just beginning your author career? Is there something that you wish, wish you could go back and tell yourself? Yes. I wish that I had realized that there was such, that Sisters in Crime was not some elite group that would snub me. I never joined, I never tried to join because I thought, well, I'm nobody. And those kinds of groups, um, are the most wonderful thing. They're so supportive. It's incredible, those women. They're wonderful. And Mystery Writers of America is good, but I don't belong to them because their dues are too expensive right now. <laughs> I like Mystery Writers. Um, and then if you can get yourself a critique group, um, and you just have to put yourself out there and go to the conferences, meet people. I never, you know, I was just writing alone at home, writing my book, you know, Heart of a Winner, that was actually good enough to get an agent. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I now will look back at it and I just go, oh my God, you know, there's so many beginning first writer mistakes throughout that it's, even though there's some good stuff in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we just leave that in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but that, you know, that, that's part of the journey, right? To your writing gets better as you move along. And if you have this calling, you have to follow it. But then I love what you just said. You have to find your people and, you know, I, and, and when you find your people, the, the warmth and the community and the support and the recommendations and all of that is so important, you know, and it's like, cause we're not, we're not each other's competition. You know, we, we lift each other up when we all stand together because, you know, particularly in our little community of people who write horse books, like, you know, the equestrian community, everybody is, is pretty awesome. And we all love horses and, you know, I want to create this space where we can all get together and help each other and lift each other up. And, you know, I'm hoping this podcast will be a part of helping that happen even more. Well, I do too. I mean, there's nothing to me more important. And I, I mean, when you've been in it for a long time, I love to help other people. Um, I help, love to help. I mean, I do the Sisters in Crime every year. They have a um, fantasy agent and they, they ask some of us published authors to be a quote fantasy agent and um, gals send in their, first 50 pages and then we judge we critique them mm. and we point out the things that aren't working and, and of course always point out the things that are good and that are working and you know 
they don't know who you are. I don't know who they are. There's just a, a, a woman who is, you know, a facilitator. But she wrote me this year and she said, I just want you to know that this, you know, gal wrote back and said that you were just so wonderful and it was so helpful. And that's the kind of thing, yeah, it takes, it takes a while to read 50 pages, but so what? These mm -hmm. people are striving. They want, they want to, they want to win. You know, mm -hmm. that feeling. They want to win. Mm -hmm. And 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 it, we have to be careful with each other in our creative journeys too, right? And it sounds like you were just really wonderful with this woman. And you know, because when you're just getting going, particularly on that first book, you know, you're like, what am I doing? Should I be doing this? I'm a writer. But then you kind of develop confidence as you go. But you also need to. to to be able to listen to that feedback and, and ask for the feedback, right? So you can deliver yes. the very best product. You have to learn to accept criticism. Mm. And I got to the point where I thought, well, if one person in my critique group hates something that I've in this particular chapter, but everybody else thinks it's fine, then I don't pay any attention to what she said. But if mm -hmm. two people have a problem with it, I'll look it over and, and maybe change it a little. And if three people have a problem, then I know we've got a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's true. You you sort of have to pick and choose what what you also accept and what what you're gonna you know put over here on the shelf and just be like that's okay. I'm gonna go this way. Yeah, and I tell exactly. I tell everybody in my critique group that because sometimes I'll send them something they're not gonna like and I'll say this is just a suggestion, mm -hmm. only an opinion. It is not right. It is not wrong. It's just what how I might change it if it were mine. But it's not mine. It's yours. And anything that's useful or helpful to you, please use. And the rest of it, just ignore it. You've shared so much awesome information with us, and you've talked a lot about your journey as an author. You know, what advice would you give um, to an aspiring author that hasn't quite gotten started or, or gotten that first draft done um, on their first book? What, what would you offer them? Well, the best advice I ever had was from... Um, Noreen Wald, who uh, taught at um, the Writers uh, Center in Bethesda, which I mentioned earlier, and she would say, keep going, keep going, keep going. She would say, oh, well, you know, you could change this and that and that and that, but in the end she would say, and keep going, don't stop. Because I stopped for five years, Carly, when I got all those rejections on Heart of Winter. I thought, well, poor me. Oh, this isn't working. Oh, they don't like me. Oh, you know, God, what a waste of time. What a big baby response. You have to say, screw them. They don't know anything. I'm going to keep on doing what I think I should do. Um, and But it took me five years to get to that point. And, you know, I probably would be established now with a, a regular press, a, a good press, had I not lost those five years. But I did. So that's why I say keep going. That is excellent advice because, uh, you know, I think what you just said, we can be our own worst enemies when it oh, yeah. comes to our writing. Oh, yeah. uh, I had a similar situation where I, you know, started and stopped and started and stopped and said, you know, what am I doing and kept shelving my book. And then, uh, you know, I finally got the courage and you, sometimes you just have to do it, you know, do it and put it out there and learn your lessons and keep going forward and keep writing. Um, because if it's calling you forward, you have to follow that, right? Because that's, that's what you're here for, right? Exactly. And, you know, it just made me think of like when you're riding and there's a big fence in front of you, you have to go over a big jump, you're out in the field and you're like, oh, so it looks awfully, you know, you just, you just keep going. And if you right. have a good horse, you're up and over and down and then you're like grinning because <laughs> you feel so great. Um, and I, I, as I said before, I do miss that. I miss riding those horses because I would think nothing, but this horse would go over a five foot straight up and down post and rail fence. I mean, it was awesome. He was amazing. So I'm just lucky I had that. Yes, I can't do it anymore, but hey, I got to do it. Mm -hmm. And And you're still writing about that experience. So you kind of get to live it live it again, you know, through your creative words, right? Like, so it's right. still there, very much there for you. What for you has been the hardest part about being an author in your writing career? And then on the, on the other side of that, what has been the very best thing for you about being an author of your books? Well, the hardest part for me is what I think is the hardest part for anybody, the rejection. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, hey, the, the thing that made me stop for five years, that obviously was a real punch in the face. 
and not doing well with St. Martin's because once I got a two book deal St. Martin's, I was sure that I had arrived and that my career would take off and everything would be wonderful. Well, it didn't. Mm. And um, knowing that, and I remember my agent called me that first summer and she said, well, I talked to, to Hannah, who was my editor at St. Martin's, and the news isn't good. They're all, they've changed their whole way of doing things. They just want to do big books from now on. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to write Fifty Shades of Grey or The Girl on the Train. Um, that's not me. And, you know, they just, it just, and then when I, the book weren't selling well, that was disappointing because they're great books. Um, and it's really hard. It's re that was one of the hardest experiences I've had. And then I did just part ways with my agent. Um, and she was sickened by the whole St. Martin's thing herself. And I, to be honest with you, I think that she just didn't want to represent me anymore. So yeah. that was hard. Mm. That was hard. Mm -hmm. And then having to switch to go back to self-publishing. And that's why I mentioned before the gal Lois Watts and then in the indentured servants. Um, if I'm not going to have the big press, then I think you should self-publish. I, really mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. it's the way to go. Well, it gives you a whole lot more power, right? You know, it's like you don't have to, you, you can more easily keep going forward, right? Because yes. you're, there aren't the roadblocks, there aren't the constrictions from legal contracts, there aren't the um, have tos so much and, you, and you're on your own timeline, right? So you can, you can write how you want, you can make things look how you want, and then, you know, get yourself organized for the next big step. You know, and I, and I think there is a, there is a lot of momentum around independent publishing right now. I think the quality is there. I think there's communities of authors supporting each other to make the work even better. I like to, yeah. I like to equate it to the um, indie musicians or indie film. You know, how many indie musicians in indie film end up going out there and just blowing people's socks off. So that's the community I think we're in right now. And that's what we're up to. And you're clearly doing that. I mean, you, and, I, and, I, and good on you. Well, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. That's all we can do is to just keep on going. Yeah. And, and, you know, anything that is important to you and a creative endeavor is difficult, right? So there's always hardships, but there's also really beautiful, bright moments. So oh, yeah. what's oh, yeah. been the best part of all of this for you? I think the one of the things that was the best part and one of the best gifts a writer can get, I had a, a gal um, send me a message on Facebook and she said, I was going through a really hard time. And she said, your book, Full Mortality, got me through it. I read your book and, and it just gave me another world to go to and, and it got me through it. And there's nothing better than that money. You can't, you know, you can't buy that kind of feeling with, mm -hmm. with money. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I've gotten a lot of people, you know, when you, when people say, oh, I read your book and I loved it and, and they'll even quote something from the book. I mean, that's a gift that makes you feel like wonderful. So, um, that's the best part of, of being a writer. I absolutely. Think. Absolutely. Well, we do it for the readers, right? You know, we, yeah. we provide yes. escape and a break from reality where people can, you know, use their imaginations and go to this other place, this world that we've created. Because once we've finished writing it, it's, it's really not ours anymore. It's for, for the readers, right? That's right. That's right. It is. Yeah. I have still enjoyed speaking with you and having you on the show today. And you are so lovely. And I think we will do a follow-up interview in the future where we can talk more about, about what you're up to in your writing journey. But for today, will you share, uh, Sasser, where people can find you in your books? Oh, well, um, sasserhill.com is the best place to go to. And I have an author Facebook page. Um, I have a few things, spend a little time on Instagram, not that much. Twitter, not too much. For me, Facebook has been the best way to sell books. Um, and I think everybody has a different um, social uh, media area or platform that works for them, that they do well with, that they understand. I understand Facebook. I never have any problem with it. I, it, I guess because I first got on it you know, about 12 years ago, so I know it really well, and even the changes they've made. Um, I do not advertise on Facebook, though. I think that's a bad, uh, people say doing ads on Amazon is a better, a better return for your buck, but I don't know if that's true. I mean, that's a whole nother 
big, huge conversation, how to sell your books and what's the best bang for your buck. It's a hard thing. Yeah, we, you know, and, and, and that's the other thing too. We, we, as authors, we, we try a whole lot of different things. And for me, what, what I think, I mean, you could spend money to advertise, but for, but for me, I think what works best is like knowing your readers, getting out in the community and going to events, um, networking, and then building, you know, you say you focus a lot on Facebook, like building a community around yourself in your books as an author so people know who you are and because I think the best way to sell books is for one reader to read it and be like oh my gosh I just read this awesome book go check it out so it's like the more people you meet the more people read your books the more they recommend them because I know that that's how I am when someone recommends someone that is my trusted friend recommends a book to me I am more inclined you know to go purchase that book also you know review reviews get, getting reviews on your books on the platforms that you're selling them like your amazing reviews that you've been getting for your books um really i think helps people read the back and, and know whether or not it's something for them so reviews you know from readers matter but that but that's all you know kind of outside of our control really it's like all we can be is who we are and and make sure people know our books exist, but you know, we can often throw a lot of money away trying different things. I did. Yeah. I spent a ridiculous amount of money um, advertising on Facebook and it just, it didn't pay off. It wasn't worth it. Yeah, and you know, I'm with you. I've, I've spent money advertising on Facebook and I didn't see uh, the return on my investment. I know there's a lot of courses out there that teach you like different ways to like do it. And I, I, you know, I just, I just found meeting people, talking to people, going to events, supporting things in my local community where readers, where my readers, my demographic is likely to be, has been the best way to get the word out about my books rather than throwing money away, you know, trying to hit the right demographic of people that don't even know me through advertising on Facebook. Right. I know. And it's not just throwing money away. It's also, you know, just running yourself ragged mentally trying to keep up with how to do it and then which one is the best one and which video should I watch today and by the time you've spent all that time trying to learn how to do the latest greatest thing all you want to do is you know get in bed and put the covers over your head I mean, it's just awful right well and think about all the time you're spending trying to figure that stuff out when we should be just writing books so like the real goal should be write the books, get more material out for your readers that do love you and, you know, do love your books that will recommend your books to others. Because I think, I think about that all the time and you're so right. It's like, it's exhausting to try and stay on top of everything because there's something new all the time and technology is changing so fast. So, so I'm really looking at, you know, in the next year focusing on writing and what I'm up to rather than like getting out, out here, going all over, doing all this stuff, you know, just really getting really focused on, you know, bringing the best quality writing and books to the people that are already you know reading and loving my books does that make sense it makes a lot of sense and there is absolutely as you were saying earlier there is no better advertising than word of mouth mm -hmm. and that's something you can't pay people to like your book i mean you know if they like it they'll tell people and that really helps mm -hmm. um and especially if you do get a community as you were saying and you you are out there and people see you and you go to events i mean that just Showing up, you know, whatever, whoever the famous person was that said, you know, 90% of it is showing up, you mm -hmm. know, just so people can see you and talk to you that and you can talk to them. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. And I wanted to thank you for showing up today <laughs> and being on the show. You're so welcome. Chris. <laughs> so welcome. I've so enjoyed our time together and you know, I think this is just the beginning and I look forward to continuing our relationship and learning even more about you and I wish you tons and tons and tons of more success in your endeavors and I'm, I'm so you. honored to have you and I, I love, I've been loving following your journey and I can't wait to see where you go next. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both of us, right? <laughs> so thank you for being on the show today, Cesar. I've really enjoyed you. Bye, Carly. Bye-bye. It was fun. Uh, I'd love to do it again. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? 
gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle. <laughs>